And if you have a Bible, please open up to Acts chapter 18. Acts 18. If you're going to follow along in a Pew Bible, that'll be page 1102, 1102. As you're turning there, let's pray. Father, as we come to this moment, we pray that you would speak to us from your word once again. Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to receive what you have for us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' good and powerful name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. In the first century, if you wanted to insult someone and put them down, you would call them a Corinthian. This is where Paul is in Acts chapter 18. Verse 1 says, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Corinth at the time in the first century was a city about 20 times the size of Athens in population. It's set on the isthmus between uh, the Greek mainland and the Peloponnesian Peninsula. It was a flourishing crossroads for sea travelers between the Aegean Sea and the Mediterranean Sea. Corinth really was this convergence of culture, this mingling of religions, which may sound very nice in a pluralistic way, but it was not. Corinth was a spiritual mess. It was a mess. They were a Roman colony that prided themselves on being more Roman than Rome itself. And boy, did they try to live into that. Whenever you think about the church throughout the book of Acts and you think about the cities that were influential, we think about Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem. We think about the church in Antioch, both very powerful churches in their own right. However, there are three other cities that we see from this point on in Luke's narrative that fulfill the command given by Jesus to go to the ends of the earth, which we saw in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. One is Corinth. We see it here in chapter 18. The second is Ephesus. We'll see that next week in chapter 19. And then ultimately, we will be in Rome in chapter 28. Today, we come to Corinth, and this is a place where Paul stays for about a year and a half. Uh, This means that Paul stayed in Corinth uh, longer, stayed in one place here longer than any other place that he stayed other than the city of Ephesus. And Acts 18 reveals a lot to us. For the first time, we see how Paul makes money as a tent maker in verse 3. This means that Paul was a bivocational minister, to use our modern language. Secondly, We see Paul keep the pattern of preaching first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. Thirdly, we begin to see the rise of what was called house churches. Probably more accurately put, these were churches having to meet in houses because of the persecution that they were experiencing. And lastly, a part of the context that we see in Acts 18 uh, that is important for us is that the Roman authorities, even in Corinth, did not make a distinction between Jews and Christians at this point. Later on, they would. But at this point, they made no distinction between Jews and Christian. This, so this Roman Corinthian view about the controversy surrounding Jesus and his Messiahship, the Roman authorities just simply saw this as an in-house dispute among the Jewish people. Now, Judaism and Christianity are vastly different in terms of their belief about the Messiah, very different, even though sometimes we try to make them the same, they're not. But from a legal standpoint, at this point in the book of Acts, in chapter 18, the Roman Corinthian government makes no distinction or difference between Judaism and Christianity at this point. Now, this is helpful for Christians because the Jews were allowed to worship their God. 
and do so freely. This meant Christians too were allowed to worship their God and do so freely. So this opened up some doors for the gospel, but this was not always beneficial for Christians um, as we see here in verse two. Verse one is after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Then what we see in verse two is that sometimes God uses the events of history to providentially bring about his plan in our life. Verse two says, and he, being Paul, found a Jew named Aquila. Ethnically, he is, a, he is Jewish. A native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife, Priscilla. So here we're introduced to Aquila and Priscilla. But they came from Italy because Claudius, that's the emperor, had commanded all Jews to leave Rome. Now, it's well documented throughout history that the emperor Claudius drove out the Jews uh, from Rome in 49 AD. This lasted until his death in 54 AD. And since the Roman government, they made no distinction between Jews and Christians at this point, people who were ethnically Jewish but spiritually Christian were expelled from Rome as well. And that's where um, Aquila and Priscilla make their way to Corinth. But again, here we're seeing God work. We're seeing God providentially work orchestrating a divine meeting between Paul and this couple. So at the end of verse two, it says, and he, meaning Paul, went to see them, meaning Aquila and Priscilla. Verse three, because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them. So it seems that he stays with them in their house and worked. He worked with them as well for they were tent makers by trade. So while during the day, while they are working on this, this is their business that they are doing, verse four says, and he, meaning Paul, reasoned in the synagogues every Sabbath. So he's working during the day. He's working with Aquila and Priscilla. They have this tent making business, but then also on the Sabbath, he would go to the synagogues and he tried to persuade Jews and Greeks and you may say, what are Greeks doing in the synagogue? Remember, these are the God-fearers. These are people who are ethnically Greek, but they have converted to Judaism. And Paul is there trying to persuade them of something. Paul's meeting with Aquila and Priscilla are actually gonna turn out to be a wonderful thing for the advancement of the gospel. And one of the things I think we have to, that we're taught here is that Aquila and Priscilla, they are completely displaced from their homes. They're completely displaced from everything that they know. They're displaced from life as they know it. And yet, it seems that they saw this as an opportunity to advance the gospel. Instead of sitting around having a pity party, they carried on with advancing the gospel. And from the record, it, looked like, it looks like they became Christians sometime in Rome. And then when Claudius gave his edict, they had to leave Rome and they landed in Corinth. And this teaches us as well that even though there are times when life throws us a curveball, when life gives us something and we are either disoriented or we are displaced, God is still working in those moments just like he was working in their lives. In fact, after Paul stays a year and a half in Corinth, Aquila and Priscilla go with him to Ephesus where they establish a church in their homes. We see that, 1 Corinthians 16, 19. But God is at work here. God is at work here bringing this team together in one of the roughest cities in the entire Roman Empire. And it teaches us, it tells us, it reminds us that while we're living in that place where God has planted us, it's so important that when we look around, we do not just see problems, but we see God's potential. If we were really being honest, 
most of us spend a portion of our life at least wishing we were somewhere else, doing something else, or working somewhere else, or living somewhere else. And again, this text tells us that where God has planted us, it's our job not just to see the problems around us and challenges. This is one of the worst cities in the empire. But they are there, God has planted them there, and they are there to advance the gospel. I'll never forget the day Taylor Edge, many years ago, looked at me in Huntsville, Alabama at breakfast and said, Chris, one of the Christ, a Christian's challenge is to always be present where your feet are. And we have to learn that. And because Aquila and Priscilla and Paul do so in this city of all cities, we see the gospel advance. Now, some other people show up as God is orchestrating this team. Verse five, it says that Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia. We see Silas appear in different parts of the scripture, 1 Peter 5. We see him appear in 1 Thessalonians 1 and Acts 15. We see that Silas was a leader and teacher in the church in Jerusalem. And then Paul in Acts 15 chooses Silas to go with him on his second missionary journey. Timothy, there are two letters in the New Testament written from Paul to Timothy. That's the same Timothy that bears his name. Later, Timothy would serve as Paul's representative in Corinth. We see that in 1 Corinthians 4, 17. We see that Timothy would represent Paul also in the church in Philippi, Philippians chapter two. And then Timothy would establish ultimately a church in Ephesus. We see that 1 Timothy 1, 3. Silas and Timothy show up. They come from Macedonia. And notice what Paul is doing. The text says that Paul was occupied with the word. What an amazing statement. Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ, the Messiah, was Jesus. Right here we see this phrase, Paul was occupied with the word, meaning that word occupied means he was gripped by the word. This is what compelled Paul to testify that Jesus really was the Messiah, and he did so over and over and over, even in the face of persecution. Which raises the question for us, and that question should be, what are we gripped by? What are we gripped by? What is it that keeps our minds, that keeps our hearts, that keeps our souls preoccupied? Because you see, God uses people whose root passion is his word. God uses people whose root passion is his word. You can have passions about a lot of things in life. Yes, God uses all kinds of things, but the root passion has to be a passion for his word. The passion can't be just for learning, although learning is a great thing. The passion just can't be for just leading. I mean, some people lead anybody, anywhere, at any time, even if they don't know where they're going. They want to lead somebody. Everybody, I want to be the leader, right? That's not the passion. The root passion has to be for God's word, not just a cause on the news cycle. Boy, that's popular today, isn't it? Let's get passionate about a cause, not just a crowd, not just a gathering. No, no, no. The passion for people, if you want to be used by God, the passion you have to have is a passion for his word. Paul is gripped by it right here. But listen, the Bible is honest. Look at verse six. Sometimes when you have this passion, when you're gripped by God's word in your life, verse six, notice that people opposed him and reviled him. You say, wait a minute, he's, he's passionate about this. Wouldn't God bless that? Oh, God's blessing that. But there will always be people who oppose it and there will always be people who will revile it. 
And notice what Paul does here in this particular situation. And when they opposed and reviled him, notice what Paul does this time. He shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your heads. That's strong language. And he says, I am innocent. And then he says, from now on, I will go to the Gentiles. That had to be a scene. You see, when a Jewish person will walk into a Gentile territory or town, and as they were leaving Gentile territory or a town, they would get outside the city limits and they would literally shake the dust out of their clothes and off their feet as a sign to insult the Gentiles. I don't want anything that you have on me. It was an insult to them. They would literally shake the dust off. And here it, the text says that Paul shook out his garments. In the first century, they would have known what this meant. But notice the Jews used to do this when they would leave a Gentile town. But notice what Paul says here. He shakes out his garments to Jews. And then he says, from now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Wow. That's a double whammy. I don't think the word whammy is in the Bible, but I used it anyway. Notice, while Paul is faithful in proclaiming the gospel to the Jews, he gives them this warning that their rejection of the gospel means that their blood is on their heads. There he is honoring their rejection. He knows, he knows. He can't persuade them. He can't make them believe in that sense. And so he is entrusting them to God's hands. He adds that he is innocent, meaning that he has been spiritually released from doing this because he has been faithful in proclaiming it to them. And what Paul is saying is, I have worked among you faithfully, meaning Jewish, ethnically Jewish brothers and sisters. Now it's time for me to move on because he knows he cannot make them believe. That's why Paul, several years later, would write back to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 2, 15 through 16. And he says this, he reminds the church in Corinth, for we are the aroma of Christ to God, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Verse 16, to the one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Right there, Paul writes back to the church in Corinth and he reminds them that a Christian being filled with the Holy Spirit, that the very presence of a Christian in a room is a reminder to people. To some is a reminder of the death they are experiencing. To some is a reminder of the life they have in Christ. This had to be a huge altercation. But notice, even though Paul's getting pushed back here and things are going on and there's this altercation that takes place, notice he doesn't slow down. Look at verse seven. It says, he, and he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. So this is a Greek who worships God, a, G, a Gentile. Notice what it says. His house was next door to the synagogue. <laughs> you know, if I just had a big altercation I, I, with people in the synagogue, I don't think I'd go next door. I think I'd probably try to go across town. But notice, Paul just walks right next door. And then here's what we read in verse eight. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire house. That's amazing. Paul has this moment, this altercation. He said, your blood is on your heads. He said, I have shared this with you. I'm moving on to the Gentiles by moving on. He went, he went, literally went next door, but then God keeps moving. The verse goes on and says, and many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. Again, this reminds us that while some reject your witness, God is still always working on somebody close to you. 
always, always at work. But here's the thing. Paul is seeing fruit at this point. He is in one of the roughest cities doing ministry. He has this team of people around him. They are doing ministry. They are working together. They're doing life together. They're doing ministry together. He's seeing fruit. Yes, there is friction. There always is. There is throughout the book of Acts. There is throughout church history, but he's seeing fruit. He's seeing people come to Christ. Right here, Crispus, he's the ruler of the synagogue. He comes to Christ. But even though Paul is seeing fruit, even though Paul is seeing good things happen around him, Discouragement is real. Discouragement is a real thing. You know, there's no explicit statement about discouragement in the text, but the next two verses reveal to us the level of discouragement in Paul, at least to some degree. Notice verse 9. He has this altercation, he goes next door. People are coming to the Lord. Many of the Corinthians are. The ruler of the synagogue is. And then in verse 9, Luke just writes this into the narrative. And he says, and the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision. So God speaks through the Holy Spirit, through a vision to Paul. He just puts it out there and says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. And do not be silent. Verse 10, for I am with you. And no one will attack you or harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. You know, one of the confusing things about life, and you probably know what this feels like, is that you can be in a place where good things are happening and you still feel discouraged on the inside. And again, I think we've all been there. And one of the things we have to remember about this particular text that Luke just puts in the narrative, there's no description really of Paul's discouragement here. But Luke puts it in the narrative and we have to remember that God does not give irrelevant revelations. So he speaks to issues that are directly going on in our lives. So when he says to Paul, do not be afraid, that tells us Paul is what? He is afraid. When he says, go on speaking, that tells us Paul's thinking about not speaking. When he says, don't be silent, it tells us Paul's thinking about being silent, at least in this city. When he says, for I am with you, it tells us that Paul's at least experiencing and thinking, maybe God's not with me, at least in this place. When he says, no one will attack you, it means Paul's worried about that. When he says, I have many in this city who are my people. Paul may have been starting to think the work here is done, but God comes in in a vision, reinforces this because Paul is discouraged. And again, you know what that's like. When you feel discouraged, you, you feel unwilling to take on new challenges. When you feel discouraged, you don't feel excited about life on most days. When you feel discouraged, you, you don't see the impact of your life. When you feel discouraged, you don't, have a sense of advancement in life. Discouragement can bring a lack of focus. When you're discouraged, sometimes you can't see past today. Our word for discouraged comes from a French word. The word des and courage. Des means away and courage meaning courage. It's as if my courage has been cast away from me. And again, we know what that's like. 
And right here we learn a very important lesson. And that lesson is that when we are discouraged, we have to learn to listen to and live. Psalm 27, 14 says, wait for the Lord, be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Psalm 31, 24, be strong, let your heart take courage. All you who wait for the Lord. Notice how that sounds from similar. Notice in both of those verses, the command is to be strong, but be strong and do what? Be strong and it's followed by let your heart take courage. We have to be strong enough to let our heart take encouragement from God. And that's what's happening for Paul right here in this text. And I believe what God said to Paul here in this text, and again, God does not speak unless it's needed. I believe we have this written here. It's the reason why I believe Luke was inspired to put it in the Acts narrative for us today. And so the Holy Spirit gives this timely word of encouragement. Look at it again, verse nine. Do not be afraid. That's the first part. Second part, go on speaking and do not be silent. The third part, for I am with you. The fourth part, no one will attack you to harm you. The fifth part, I have many in this city who are my people. The result of Paul hearing that one night was verse 11. Verse 11 And he, Paul, stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. When Paul heard this word in this vision through the power of the Holy Spirit, God speaking to him, it caused him to stay in Corinth for a year and a half, which means Paul lived every day for a year and a half off this one word that God spoke to him. I want to look at that because I believe this is a word for us. The first part of it is do not be afraid. If anybody understood fear, Paul understood fear. He knew what it was like to have a mob of people come after him with the sole purpose of beating him and hopefully, in their minds, killing him. But Paul lived with another kind of fear. Paul lived with a holy fear that outweighed earthly fear. This is beautiful. Paul writing back to the church in Corinth uses some interesting and inspired words about five years after what we're reading in Acts 18. Acts 18 is written at some point after 49 AD. Paul writes 2 Corinthians around 55 or 56 AD. And in 2 Corinthians 5.11, Paul writes these words, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. What an amazing statement. You see, you and I and people today, modern people do not like this word fear when it comes to God. But Paul says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. What Paul is doing is reminding the church that a self-preserving fear of the world that just preserves me, a self-preserving fear must be outweighed by a holy and reverent fear of God a holy respect for God. We've lost that in our culture, people. We have so lost that. And we get so touchy about words like fear. Oh, I don't want to fear God. God is holy. And we stand in front of him. People ask me, say, what's happened to the church in America? What's happened to the church in America is in many ways, we've, we're in a situation we have created. And by we, by we, I mean preachers and Bible teachers and worship leaders and church choirs and church bands. That's what I mean by we. 
You see, when there is no holy reverence and awe on the platform and in Sunday school classes and in small groups, there's not gonna be holy reverence and awe in the pews, much less the streets. So we are in a situation that many of us, church leaders, have created. See, the platform is not a place of entertainment. So many times, that's how we view church. Let me come sit in a seat, entertain me. I'm not entertaining you. Not right now and not any other Sunday. This is not a place of entertainment. It's a place where we exalt the holiness of God and we come face to face with that holiness and all of our unholiness is naked before him and he sees all of it and yet he loves us and invites us into a relationship. That's what happens in this moment because that's who God is. And so Paul writes the words, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. A few years after Paul leaves Corinth, he writes back and he says, there is a holy fear we must not lose in the church because eternity is at stake. This is not a game. Eternity is at stake. Everlasting life is at stake, which means when people like me and Sunday school teachers and worship leaders and others, when they stand up and they sing or they proclaim or when you, when you talk about and you claim to speak on behalf of God, you better tremble when you do it because eternity is at stake. That's why if I could sit down with every teenager, every single one, just sit down and have a conversation, I'd just say, be very careful when you start claiming to speak for God especially when you start adding to his word, especially when you start taking it away because eternity is at stake. The same goes for every one of us. Paul lived with a holy fear, awe, and reverence of God. And he writes back and he says, that must motivate you because when you see who God is, You don't fear man at all. And God says, keep speaking. Do not be silent. See, the schemes of Satan are pretty easy to understand. They really are. He knows that he cannot take his salvation from you. No one can take that from you. So instead of going after a person's salvation, what the enemy wants to do is to keep you silent about your salvation. You know, I really don't think that Satan cares much about a saved person going to heaven as long as they don't take anybody with them. That's why 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16 says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. That is holy fear and awe and reverence. The second thing he says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Be prepared to share that. Because when God is holy and awe and reverence in your heart, set apart in that way, you share from that hope that you have in him. He goes on to say, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, not if, when you are slandered, those who revile you and your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Revile, same things happen to Paul in Acts 18. And we're called to be people who keep speaking and not be silent. The third thing he says is that God is with you, that you are never alone when you're doing God's work. You look at any poll, the number one reason why people do not do ministry or share their faith is fear, which is why I think God dealt with it first. 
But we have to come to that place when we realize that God is with us right here, right now. Psalm 27, verse 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? He is my light now, my salvation forevermore. Why should I be afraid? Psalm 18, 6, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? How do you live that? Psalm 34, 4. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. I sought him, he answered, he delivered from all my fears. He is with us. The fourth thing he says is that you will not be attacked and harmed here. This is a conditional promise given to Paul in this particular situation. I can't promise you that. I can't promise you that harm will not come to you. Later on, Paul would give his life for the gospel. But in this particular situation in Corinth, God said, no one's going to attack you and hurt you. And so how we live that, I think, is to, to hear the words of George Whitfield. George Whitfield, one of the greatest revival preachers in history, said this statement. We are immortal until our work on earth is done. And I think we have to have that mentality as we go into every day, especially if we go into a day where we want to represent Christ. He says, do not be afraid. Keep speaking. Do not be silent. I am with you. You will not be harmed. Fifth, God told him, I have many people in this city who are my people. And I believe that's not only true of Corinth. I believe that's true of the River Region. I believe that's true of Montgomery, Alabama. I believe that there are people in this city waiting on an authentic witness to see this Christ in us. And the question is, is will we take the approach of Aquila and Priscilla and Paul in this moment and be present where our feet are and realize the opportunity that we have because of the power of God that lives in us to keep God first and foremost and live in holy reverence and all of who he is, which takes away all other fear, to continue to speak, to realize that God is walking with us and to trust him on that journey. Will we do that? And if we do, if we will, it's amazing how God will move and use us. Amen? I pray that we would be that kind of church and that we would see God for who he is. We would take our assignment, whatever that may be, serious in this moment. We're never gonna get this moment in history again. So let us not waste it. Father, would you help us? Would you help us be the people you've called us to be for this time, for this season? Would you help us see you for who you are? And may we stand in awe and reverence at your amazing holiness. May we be captivated, Father, by you. May we be captivated by your son who went to a cross for us. May we be captivated by the awesome power of the Holy Spirit that lives in us. And may that cast out all fear. Help us see you and just you. In Jesus' good and powerful name.
Amen.